Our text this morning is James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father, by your spirit this morning, open our hearts. Open our hearts to hear your word, to look into the word like a mirror that you might tell us, reveal to us how we need to change. In your name we pray this, amen. We are a people immersed in conflict. Our culture is in conflict. Our nation is in turmoil. Our homes are microcosms of world war. Our marriages are filled with conflict. Our friendships are always in a state or often in a state of conflict. But don't give in to the temptation to think that it's worse now in the year 2020 than it has ever been. Any student of history will tell you that this has always been the case. From the moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God in Eden, humanity was cast into a chaotic existence of jealousy, strife, dissatisfaction, schism, fracture, suspicion, hatred, and murder. The curse, which was God's judgment on our rebellion, is filled with references to conflict. To the serpent who had tempted and deceived Eve, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, in that is the first inkling, the smallest subtle prophecy of the coming Messiah. He would be the one who would crush the serpent's head with his heel. But it is outlining the story of humanity. There is the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now think about the amount of conflict that has come out of that verse. That that represents Even if we don't fully understand, and there's a lot of debate about what that means, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, the words themselves contrary to your husband. And I don't mean that as saying that the wife or the woman is the cause of the conflict. But God here is speaking to Eve, and he's saying, this is where the conflict is going to be for you. To the man, God said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Even living itself would be a fight with the earth. And having been banished from the garden, the very next episode in the book of Genesis, the very next event in the history of humankind is a murder. As Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Genesis chapter 4 verse 8. The first event... After the garden, that's recorded, is not a case of adultery. It is not a case of theft. There is no Sabbath as of yet. If you look at all the Ten Commandments, it's not an act of idolatry or forming a graven image. It is a murder. Why? Because Cain was jealous. He was jealous and angry. Genesis 4 says. This is the very curse. This is the very sin and the very hopelessness that Jesus died to save us from. To deliver us out of. And if you belong to him, he has saved you from it. He has delivered you out of it. Sadly, Why is it that our shared life as Jesus' people is often no different than Genesis chapter 4? We pollute the church. You want to know what the church's biggest challenge is? The church. We pollute the church, this glorious, redeemed community of forgiven, transformed people. With jealousy, strife, selfish ambition, anger, hatred, and murder. And as James writes this letter, as he inspects the Christian communities, these churches that are forming in the land of Palestine and just outside of its borders... His primary concern in this letter is the strife and the enmity that are created by this duplicity in the hearts of Jesus' people. The double-minded person. The fractures in our souls that cause us to live hypocritically. 
to help, uh, that cause us to live in self-deceit. In chapter 1, James clarifies that God is dealing with these fractures in us because we all have them. And he is dealing with them on the surface in the experience of each of our lives through trials. The trials are a refining process for all of us and each of us to mend or to make whole these fractures and divisions in our souls. And so beginning then in chapter 1, verse 19, James unfolds four parallel arguments or kind of mini sermons, mini studies that expose how we live in this duplicity without realizing it. And the absurdity and the impossibility of living in these ways while considering ourselves to be God's people. There is the double-mindedness of hearing the word only and not actually doing it. There is the double-mindedness of claiming to love our neighbor while discriminating against some, showing partiality. There is the double-mindedness of boasting in faith that we believe that we have faith, that faith justifies us before God, but holding to this kind of faith that doesn't have works, which is a false faith, a dead faith, a faith that cannot save us. And then there is the double-mindedness of using the same tongue to bless God, but curse fellow human beings who were made in his image. Now, I want you to think for just a second of James' letter here like a landscape, a a mountain range, if you will. And he begins with this mountain and this hill, and he's working upward. He's climbing. And eventually, he will get to the peak of his letter, the climax, and the peak stands at the center of the epistle of James. And by the way, this is generally true for all the books of the Bible. There will be a particular verse, or in longer books, there will be a particular passage, a story even in some of the Old Testament narratives that really summarizes the theme or the central message of the book. For James, this peak... This center is in chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, where he calls us to a radical repentance. But before that, there are two more steps upward toward that peak. And each is introduced with a question. A question that challenges us to self-evaluation. Given God's design in trials and how that exposes the double-mindedness that we have. And given then these, this exposing of these different ways, being hearers only and showing partiality and ha- having faith, a dead faith, 
without works, and then using our tongue duplicitously, exposing what this double-mindedness is, he then asks two questions. The first is found here in chapter 313. Who is wise and understanding among you? The next one is found in chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? These two questions and their paragraphs are building toward the call to radical repentance. They are an escalation in James's argument toward us, with us, his appeal toward us. He is, he is working toward the crescendo. So in our text today then, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, James establishes wisdom as the solution or the antidote to strife and conflict. However, there are two kinds of wisdom that shouldn't surprise us in our study of James. He contrasts two kinds of wisdom. So James gives us, I find here, then three principles to identify true wisdom or three tests of true wisdom so that we can pursue peace in the church, so that we can have peace in the body of Christ. Principle number one, verse 13, wisdom is distinguished by conduct. Wisdom is distinguished by conduct. The question in verse 13 is a challenge. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, keep in mind, these are the early days of the church. Most of the believers, most Christians are Jewish. They have come out of the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith. They are Israelites who have come to faith in Christ as the fulfillment of the Jewish religion, as, as the Jewish faith, which Jesus was. This includes James himself. For the Jew, wisdom was the mark of maturity. It was the mark of honor, status in the community. Someone who was wise spoke with authority. They had the ability to judge matters, to give perspective, to instruct, to teach. And so anyone wanting to have a position of honor and authority needed to be recognized as wise and understanding. James says any claim to be wise, any claim to be understanding demands scrutiny. But what is the criteria for evaluating such a claim? That criteria James gives in the next sentence, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom is not a question of knowledge. The knowledge isn't divorced from it. You can't have wisdom without knowledge. But it's not a matter of knowledge. You can have knowledge and not have wisdom. It's not a matter of theological accuracy. It isn't a matter of business savvy. 
The criterion is not wealth, success. It isn't race, which for James would have been Jew and Gentile in the church. It is conduct. It is behavior. As James says here, works. Now that's a shocker, isn't it? That James would actually tie wisdom to behavior. That he would tie it to actually how we live. Now wisdom in the Old Testament meant skillful living. And living skillfully meant living righteously. It meant living in a way that squared up with God's character and demands. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Because the fear of the Lord is beginning with a worldview that God sits on his throne and judges humanity and is in charge. That is the beginning point for wisdom. You can't understand how to skillfully construct life and relationships and a home and economics and education without the right beginning point, which is God rules. God is sovereign and he judges humanity. We are accountable for how we live before him. That's the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning point for wisdom and knowledge and understanding. So throughout the wisdom literature then of the Old Testament, and this includes Psalms. You, we read Psalms sometimes as the songbook of the people of God, which it was. But that's, this is why Psalms are, are dominated with this theme of the righteous and the wicked. The fool and the godly. That's why it's, they're dominated with those themes and God's judgment against the wicked. Because the wise person was someone who lived uprightly, with integrity, who avoided sexual temptation, who treated others with fairness, justice. The immoral person who is given to drunkenness, lust, violence, lying, manipulation, ensnared by evil, that was the fool. The fool was not just somebody who was silly or ridiculous, but was someone who was lived that way, an immoral way, without the fear of the Lord, as if there was never accountability for how they would live. For example, Proverbs 10.23, doing wrong is like a joke to a fool, but wisdom is pleasure to a man of understanding. So wisdom then was the most prized quality for the Jew, the virtue from which all other virtues came. Proverbs 16.16 illustrates this, how much better to get wisdom than gold. To get understanding is to, be ch- is to be chosen rather than silver. It is wisdom and understanding that bring success and fullness to life. Proverbs 16, 22, understanding is a fountain of life to him who has it. Proverbs 13, 15, understanding wins favor. Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant 
riches. Now, it could be that James sees the Christians, the believers that he's writing to, and he sees them looking to those with wealth and influence as an indicator of wisdom and understanding. That might, that might kind of give us some data for why back in chapter 2, it's this issue of the poor man coming into your assembly and the wealthy man and giving deference to the one with money and influence and telling the person without money and influence who's dressed in dirty clothes and saying, you sit over there in a the corner, you sit at my feet. You stand over there in the corner, you sit at my feet. And equating this person who has the wealth and the influence as the person who's wise. Even the person within the church, within the assembly. It could be that it's that kind of valuing as well as those who had the wealth and the influence in those societies that were claiming to be wise and understanding and demanding positions of authority. It could be those scenarios. But James makes it clear here that wisdom is the orientation of a person's life that governs his or her conduct. That's the definition of wisdom. And James's understanding squares with the Old Testament scriptures. So James says, wait a second. You're claiming to be wise. You're claiming to be understanding, but does your conduct match? Because that is the criterion. Because your conduct should show works in the meekness of wisdom. That is, wisdom and understanding prove themselves in humble, considerate actions. Being meek is not being fragile or being spineless, or hugging the wall. Meekness is strong, others-centeredness. That's how I describe meekness. It is strong, powerful, others-centeredness. Have you ever seen images in the news? Uh, Might have been in Time Magazine, news online sources, of a soldier especially in the Middle East, because that's where most of our soldiers are these days. But a soldier in full combat gear, holding a child, helping a child, that's meekness. It is someone who has the power of destruction at their fingertips, but acts with gentleness to someone who's vulnerable. That's meekness. So the danger that James is confronting here is that you might consider yourself wise, you might consider yourself mature, you might consider yourself honorable, you might consider yourself leadership material, but just as there are two kinds of hearers, just as there are two kinds of faith, a dead faith and a faith that saves, there are also two kinds of wisdom. There is a wisdom from below, and there is a wisdom from above. And James now tells us how to tell them apart. Principle number two. 
Earthly wisdom breeds conflict. Earthly wisdom breeds conflict. Verse 14, the first kind of wisdom begins with jealousy and selfish ambition. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Jealousy, or the word can be translated zeal. It can be a a positive term, as in God is a jealous God. You know why it's okay for God to be jealous? For the same reason it's sin for you to be jealous. God is rightfully jealous because God is rightfully at the center of all things. That is who he is as God. It is the rightest thing for God to demand glory. That's what makes it wrong for you and me. God is a jealous God. Or how about zeal for your house has consumed me? John chapter 2 verse 17, when Jesus clears out the temple in anger with a whip that he himself constructed. That's a right kind of zeal. But here, bitter jealousy is obviously bad, the way the word is usually used. This is envy. This is resenting someone who has something you want, or, which is the way we usually think of it, I'm jealous, they have something I want. But jealousy also applies to the possession of or the trying to keep making a demand for the thing you think you ought to have and retain that somebody else maybe is trying to take from you. That too is jealousy. It may be something material. That's kind of our, you know, our surface level consideration. I'm jealous. They have a, a cool car. They're jealous. They're dating the guy I want to date or whatever it is. They have the better job. They have a better reputation. I'm jealous. I want that. But it may be abstract. It might be I want the respect. I want to have the influence that that person has. Either way, it's bitter jealousy. Selfish ambition was a word that was used outside of the Bible to speak of self-promotion, self-gratification. It was actually used to describe those who sought political office or positions of influence. I told you nothing's changed, right? James says, if you have these in your heart, if your person is dominated by these things, don't boast about it. Don't boast about being wise. It's really what he means. I don't think he's saying, don't go around boasting about how jealous you are. He's saying, don't boast about being wise and understanding because that is false to the truth. It's another way of saying, don't be self-deceived. Don't think and claim to be something you're not. Because this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Just as that faith can't save you. 
because it's a dead faith, this wisdom is a false wisdom that does not come from God. It does not come down from above. Remember, every good gift and every perfect gift is from where? Above. From above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. James chapter 1, verse 17. So the God in whom there are no fractures, in whom there are no flaws, in whom there is no hypocrisy or duplicity, the wisdom he gives is the same kind of wisdom. This wisdom does not come from there. Wisdom that God gives reflects him, his character, his wholeness. That is not this wisdom. This wisdom originates somewhere else because this wisdom is an orientation of life that is dominated by bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. And he uses these two terms in verse 14, and then he uses them again in verse 16 as the summary. And in between here, he uses three adjectives to expose where this kind of wisdom comes from. It is, first of all, earthly. That is, it is the opposite of the wisdom that is from above. It's earthly. This wisdom, this life's orientation does not consider, it cannot grasp God's realm, God's will. The way God operates. Perhaps the best way to translate this word would be earthbound. It's an earthbound wisdom. It is unspiritual. In the New Testament, unspiritual is always contrasted with things that are spiritual. Sometimes it's trans- this word is translated natural. It's really the word for soul. It's, it's, it's a soulish or a mannish quality as opposed to godlike. It is man-centered. It's based in the fear of man. It's based on the exaltation of man. And it can never transcend the earth. It can never transcend man because it is without light, without illumination. This wisdom is groping around in the dark and never has answers for the strife, the conflict, and the murder in the human race. It's unspiritual. And it is demonic. In the end, the true origin of this so-called wisdom is not heaven but hell, the realm of demons. The kind of life perspective that brings into the Christian community bitter jealousy and and a selfish ambition is acting in accord with demons. Maybe this is why Paul commands us in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, watch out for those who cause divisions, avoid them. And in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped 
and sinful. This kind of wisdom breeds conflict because, verse, six, uh, verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Let's talk about this word disorder. Because, you guessed it, we've already seen this word in James twice. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That word unstable, the same word. And we saw it in chapter 3, verse 8, just last week, when we were talking about the tongue. The tongue is a restless evil, an unstable or treacherous evil. Same word. Now we have it again in chapter 3, verse 16. I think James is trying to make a point to us. Disorder. This condition just follows the double-minded person wherever he or she goes. In prayer, in their speech, and into the church. I like the word unstable here too, or treachery. Jealousy and selfish ambition create a cracked, unstable, precarious community. One that can't be counted on. One that will crumble when pressure is, is added. It is the kind of condition, this disorder, this instability that invites every vile practice. This is a broad, sweeping assessment. This so-called wisdom opens the front door to the people of God and lets every kind of mischief inside to wreak havoc. That's the wisdom not from above, it is a wisdom that is earthbound, mannish, and even demonic. It produces jealousy and selfish ambition, which brings treachery into the church and makes us vulnerable to every kind of evil. But, praise God, there is another kind of wisdom that is true wisdom. It is the wisdom that we want. Principle number three. Heavenly wisdom creates peace. Heavenly wisdom creates peace. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above. True wisdom is from above. It is good and perfect. That is, it is whole. It is consistent with the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow, uh, variation or shadow due to change. Then James just unleashes seven descriptions that mark this heavenly wisdom. It is first pure, means it's innocent, it is blameless, it's undefiled, it's unmixed. It is the goal that God has for our faith, that it will be purified, that the, the dross, the elements within it, 
that mix it and make it less valuable will be burned up, heated up and brought to the surface and scooped off. The wisdom that comes from God comes that way. If it's really from God, it's, it's pure. It is peaceable. Heavenly wisdom loves peace. It doesn't thrive on strife and conflict and suspicion and judgment. It delights in harmony. Peace is a goal even in disagreement for the heavenly wisdom. It is gentle. That is, it's considerate. This word describes a willingness to yield to others, even in disagreement. Not to necessarily change position or conviction about something, but but to yield in terms of how we communicate, how it talks. It's gentle. It is open to reason. This describes someone who is not argumentative when faced with another person's disagreeing viewpoint. Someone who is open to reason doesn't see the other person's view as a threat to their station, their status, their ego, their superiority. This is someone who listens. This is someone who evaluates their own opinion and says, hold on, maybe I need to check myself. I need to hear you. You might have a better perspective than I do. That is open to reason. The wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. In other words, heavenly wisdom cares for the needy. It doesn't favor the rich or discriminate against the poor in the church and the community. It doesn't disregard the welfare of someone who's vulnerable or disregard the viewpoint or the understanding of someone because they don't have all of the status, all of the things that we usually uh, demand to evaluate whether or not someone's wise or understanding. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It is impartial. We've seen this word several times as well. It means undivided. It's not duplicitous. We saw the word in James chapter 1, verse 6. The person asking God for wisdom must ask in faith without any doubting. That's what this word is, the without any doubting. Someone who's impartial. In other words, there's no fracture, no duplicity in heavenly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom is sincere. The word is actually without hypocrisy. Heavenly wisdom is real. It doesn't play a part. It doesn't mask ulterior motives. Wisdom that originates with God doesn't manipulate to get its way or accomplish its agenda by deceit and duplicity, trickery. That's the earthly wisdom. The wisdom that is from above is all of these things. And the wisdom from above is summarized then in verse 18 as peace. 
and the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If earthly wisdom brings jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, every vile practice, then heavenly wisdom yields peace. A peace can refer to peace with God. If you're a Christian, then peace has been made between you and God. Jesus has reconciled us to God. That's why we use that word, or the Bible uses that word, reconcile. We were enemies of God. Now we have been reconciled to him. Peace has been made. It can refer to rest or a lack of anxiety. The peace of God transcends all understanding, Philippians 4, verse 7. Transcends all understanding. But here, this is peace with each other. This is peace with each other. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 uses it this way, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And I think this is what Paul is getting at when he writes to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He's talking about the peace that Jesus has brought between you and God is a peace that ought to rule in your heart and govern your relationships with other people, the rest of the body of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Verse 18 reads a little awkwardly, right? but it means basically this. Those who make peace, those who strive for peace, actually sow seed in that when cultivated in peace will yield righteousness. Will yield righteousness. It will yield fruit that is pleasing to God. And that takes us all the way back to where James began this discussion. Before he started the four unfolding arguments that expose this fracture, this double-mindedness in us, back in chapter 1, verse uh, Verses 15, 16, 17, 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a first fruit among his creatures. We are to be righteous, right? Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. That's what James is now returning to in wisdom. That's the peace that is pleasing to God. So while we're a culture in conflict, while we are a nation in turmoil, must the church be that? I want the church, the Crossway Fellowship, in particular, to be at peace and to be pursuing peace. Because we are centered in Christ, rejecting earthly wisdom and its methods and its worldview and exercising a heavenly wisdom. This is not the elimination of disagreement. 
if disagreement could be eliminated, we wouldn't need the wisdom. There wouldn't be any, there wouldn't be any soil for conflict if there wasn't disagreement. This wisdom from above is God's gift to tell us how to work through those, the methods we use, the way we treat each other. This is the wisdom that is from above. And back to James chapter 1, if we need wisdom, what do we do? We ask for it. We ask for it. Not double-mindedly, not in a double-minded way. Because God is not duplicitous in giving the wisdom. See how James connects all of these things. That is the wisdom that we need. And as we go forth today, pursue that wisdom. Evaluate your own life. I would even encourage you to do this. Think through the conflicts that you're in. No matter how small they are, how major they are, go back to James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, and say, Who is wise and understanding among you? Am I employing, am I falling for a, an earthly wisdom, a demonic wisdom? Or am I pursuing this wisdom? Am I receiving it from God because I've asked for it and now putting it into action, conduct, by being peaceable, open to reason, gentle, sincere, impartial? That is the, that is the great task that James lays before us today. And so, Father, we ask for your help we know that you have promised it. Help us to show in our works, by our conduct, the meekness of wisdom. This great strength that is fully committed to being centered around first you and then others and self-last. Lord, we know that you give perfectly that you give and supply faithfully. And we count on that, Lord. And Lord, we trust you to mend and to heal. Lord, to guide us in our conflicts, in our disagreements, in all of the various aspects of life, whether that's with our spouse, whether that's with our children, whether that's with our, our parents, whether that's neighbor to neighbor, brother or sister in Christ, wherever those disagreements and conflict are found, we submit them to you. We ask for your mercy, that we would not buy into blind unity at the cost of, of truth, but, Lord, that we would work through these things from a common understanding and a, and a common relationship in your Son. 
In your great name, Lord, we ask all of these things, believing that you have called us to them and will supply what we need. Amen.